Welcome to the Newsbusters podcast with your host, executive editor of Newsbusters, Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to the pregame show as we prepare to go into what we call war room mode here at the MRC. It's first Republican debate night tonight. My younger, taller, funnier brother, the TV news chieftain in Milwaukee, is going to have a big night putting the local news together after this is all over. Now, I try to listen routinely to the NPR Politics podcast because I'm looking for a perfect audio sample of the liberal bubble. But they begin each episode by warning, things may have changed by the time you hear this. That is guaranteed for this podcast we're talking on Wednesday morning. Joining us for this rapidly aging spin escapade is Newsbusters video editor and senior research analyst Bill D'Agostino. His most recent video, the one you can watch right now, as opposed to the ones in the works, it's titled How the Media Should Be Covering Biden's Burisma Scandal. Welcome, Bill. Who are you calling rapidly aging, Tim? <laughs> I meant the spin is rapidly okay. aging. Right. Glad we cleared that uh, up. Between the two of us, I'm about twice your age, so I think we know the answer to that. That's fair, although I'm closing that gap percentage-wise. Well, so. okay, percentage-wise. You yeah. can't really change it otherwise. No. Uh, you thought that this video now is aging. I think it depends on how much people talk about Burisma. Um, it's, yeah. It is something they don't want to talk about. It'd be fun if... They came out of the box tonight with Brett Baer or Martha McCallum asking about Biden's Ukrainian corruption. That would be that was be an interesting start. Uh, I'm not sure that's what's going to happen. I just hope they stay on the issues. Yeah, and I, I I think this would be a good opportunity for basically every Republican on the stage to yeah like discuss that a bit. You know, act, act like you care even if you don't. <laughs> you know, because there are people out there who care about it. Um, my my kind of negative take on this is that I assume the first question and numerous other questions will be about the one candidate who won't be in the room there, Trump, and that there's probably going to be a bit of attempted culling of the herd to see who they can get to take a particularly foolhardy swing at Trump, by which I mean who they can get, who they can bait into basically attacking him in the same way that Democrats have been attacking him for the last seven years well that's the interesting sticky wicket and that is that you know we can expect that chris christie's going to come out and 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 unload trump is unfit for office and so on and uh well can i can i just say that chris christie's entire campaign being modeled around that has has very much made him look like the first of like seven inept guard in guards in a bond movie who like runs at bond <laughs> You know, like he's the first one and then Bond just like knocks him out with like a pistol whip. Like that's that's Christie's campaign. <laughs> well, I I I don't like the idea that criticizing Trump somehow makes you a rhino or a Democrat. Uh, oh, uh, for sure. But for I sure. think that I think that, uh, for example, Ron DeSantis has criticized Trump's, you know, campaign spin, which is we can't as Republicans win this race by focusing on the 2020 election. That's an anti-Trump argument, but it's not a full frontal anti-Trump attack. I think would like to hear, and maybe we'll hear from Mike Pence, uh, riots are bad. We shouldn't be for riots. Now, is that if that comes off as an anti-Trump attack, so be it. But I, I mean, I, I, think, I think it will coming from Mike Pence just because that guy has basically already 
put a pillow over his own campaign's face. I mean, if if, if Tucker Carlson didn't do him for do it for him, I I think that Mike Pence has uh, damaged his own campaign just with with many of the Trump supporters or people who are at least somewhat fond with Trump, and there is a critical mass of them. I I think he's gone um, too far over the edge. Well, I just to be viable. I just want to say we're in August of 2023. One of the things that bothers fair, me about fair. the media is the way everybody buries campaigns before they get started. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Pence did the honorable thing on January 6th. And I think that it, it'd be sad if that's somehow putting a tombstone on his campaign. Uh, you know, on the other hand, you might have. Yes, you would say to Pence, you might have said if you were in his inside cabinet, you really want to try to do this because. It, it does look to a lot of pundits like it's destroyed before it gets started. But I think that, uh, um, obviously, Mike Pence is not a left-winger. And this is, this is the problem we have, is that everything has gotten distorted, that if you are perceived as anti-Trump, then somehow you're not conservative. Although, as, as somebody who, who cares very deeply about the whole transgender issue thing, Mike, ben, Mike Pence has been pretty abysmal on that. And I think that... Um, <laughs> well, that's become that's a, not an overly conservative opinion that he's espousing. There. That's become a very interesting sort of undercurrent. And that is what positions have the candidates taken yeah. on these issues, on the issues of ugh, gender affirming care. One of the terms I hate the most. Right. Child but, mutilation. Yeah. And, and and the way that they and about dudes in women's sports. Right. Uh, those those are issues. Obviously, our liberal media is way over on the other side of those issues, um, despite the fact that it sort of destroys feminism. Uh, uh, Alex Christie was trying not to be cynical about the debate this morning, which I think is an ongoing struggle for uh, Alex. Yeah, I've never seen Alex Christie not be cynical, but okay. That's, <laughs> that's why we're friends. Not the office idealist, uh, but... Yes, he lamented the thing that he doesn't like about debates, that candidates make bold statements of great specificity about the policies they would impose as president, when we all know, to use the old political science class principle, the president proposes and the Congress disposes. I mean, obviously anybody who becomes the Republican nominee, you know, they're not going to be able to wave a magic wand and pass everything they want to. Yep. Uh, So... It might be refreshing for a candidate to just say, well, this is my vision, my broad governing principles. It's also harder to fact check. Uh, and I, I think I think that for the first debate, it's really good to just do the kind of trial by fire. Um, look, like who where who stands where on what issue kind of thing. Right. And and maybe we get to the specific proposals as we winnow the herd a little bit. Well, I want, yeah, if I'm somebody's general, I always think of the way my boy Ben listens to Bernie Sanders and plucks out him always saying, in my view. Yes. yes. So show, give us your view. Uh, now, to me, uh, we were asked in-house this morning, now, how are you going to go about this? What are you looking for? Well, obviously, this is not a George Stephanopoulos-moderated debate. I mean, we, our general approach would be to say, what are the questions the moderators are asking in which way does it tilt ideologically? Um, there, there may be a way of studying these questions when they're done. Uh, you were suggesting to me how many questions about Trump 
Uh, that's that is a real concern, right? And I, I look, I think that some questions about him are merited. Uh, he's he's the leading candidate right now by a lot. They have to respond to that. They also have to, I think, weigh in on um, all of all of his current legal issues. I I think though that if they get to like 30, 40, 50 percent of the questions are about Trump, we're kind of in stupid territory, right? Like because uh, agreed. That's that's. that's the candidates will not appreciate that a but b i i think that most of the voters will be like well look like we're going to we're going to listen to him after like let's let's hear what differentiates any of these candidates from each other right, right. i i you know it's one thing if you ask questions about let's say they start with ukraine or they start with the border and then trump comes up that's more natural. I don't right. have a problem with the candidates themselves bringing up Trump if they want to. I just think it would be good for the moderators of a debate to consider the audience. The audience at home, um, even if the polls show that there's a that Trump's ahead, the, the latest poll in Iowa also showed a lot of people haven't truly made up their minds or are still persuadable. So, you know, it shouldn't be NPR this morning and the 9 o'clock newscast. This is what happens to me. But they went to... <laughs> Uh, I'll actually listen to that. The GOP strategist Ron Bonjean, uh, who used to work for uh, Trent Lott, oh, Bonjean. Uh, said, well, Trump's not there, so this isn't going to be very interesting. So I thought that's that's the NPR spin. Yeah, of course. Coming from a Republican mouth, but you can tell they, they liked that. Yeah, of course. Of course. So, I mean. They love that. I mean, and that's, that's how they feel. Like, look, we've done studies on this. They can't stop talking about the guy. They are addicted to him. And I think part of it is because he he helps their ratings a lot, and also because they 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 all just deeply deeply hate him. Well, and I think they figure he's the easiest one to beat, which was the same logic they had in 2015-16. Uh, so I think we'll be looking tomorrow for how many of the sound bites on the morning shows are about Trump, and how many are actually about how Biden and the Democrats are wrecking America, because uh, those are the clips they don't want to run. Yep. Uh, now, so we'll come back to the debate, I'm sure, in, in the aftermath in the post-debate Newsbusters podcast. So let's hit a couple of other issues today. Sure. Biden in Maui. Uh, uh, PJ Gladnick at Newsbusters noticed the headline in the Honolulu Star Advertiser, the local Democrat rag, the headline, President Biden sends message of support, comma, hope after touring Lahaina. Then we have this clip of CNN's Bill Weir calling Biden the empathizer-in-chief. That's, in, that's insane. That's incredible. Let's listen. He did serve as empathizer-in-chief after five days of being mostly silent on the issue publicly, but the governor said he was working behind the scenes to assure uh, first responders that the feds had their back on this. Uh, he shared the stories we're familiar with of losing his daughter and wife and wondering if his sons had survived a, a car accident early in his political career. And that's what so many people here are going through now. Usually from Bill Weir, you'd expect it to all be about how we're all going to die because of climate change. That's the usual spin after a natural disaster. I mean, just imagine if you had a Republican president in there who did who said what Biden said. Right. And and for no for, comment for the yeah, for the listeners at home. Yeah. First, when he was asked about this while on vacation, uh, if he had any comment on the rising death toll in Maui, he said no comment and then walked away. That's that's already a scandal. Right. If you're if you're a Republican president, yes. then then when he's finally there, he starts regaling the people of Maui who have just lost their homes, their families, their livelihoods, that 
This one time there was a kitchen fire in his house and he almost lost his Corvette. <laughs> uh, you know, Kevin Tober reported on Newsbusters, no coverage of the kitchen fire remarks on the, on the networks. And I think that's what is fascinating to me, just as you suggest. One of the ways we can always demonstrate media bias at Newsbusters is what we call optics. So yes. this would remind me of like, Melania wearing a coat to the border that said, who cares, or whatever. the. Honestly, I don't care, do you, I think it was, yeah. <laughs> uh, and they all, that was a huge story because that's the optics they want. Yes, obviously we can all go back to Bush flying over Katrina. Yep. And they said that was abysmal. Uh, Biden flew over Maui to look at the fires. He did actually also land on the ground. But, I mean, the optics of all these... Yes, as long as we're mentioning Chris Christie. There's Chris Christie with his arm around Obama during Superstorm Sandy. Right. Uh, trying to help Obama out, you know. And so that's, those optics do matter. And the difference is, yes, with Republicans, they're like, how can we use this natural disaster to make the Republicans look bad? And when it's a Democrat, it's always, if if, if the Democrat in charge is, is says anything they say like, oh, he's giving hope and solace to these poor beleaguered people. He's the empathizer in chief. You know, this is the same Bill Weir who said even the seagulls were impressed by the size of the inauguration crowd for Obama. I, they, I mean, the most obsequious, just nauseating stuff. It's crazy. Like, is Bill Weir auditioning to be White House press staff? Is, well, that, is that what's going on here? That's a big contest. I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, but look, this is what's never going to happen, Bill. <laughs> This is what they expect is, well, it's not going to happen because they're too scared to fire Corrine Jean-Pierre. Yeah, they are. No matter how inept she is, uh, it's an it's an affirmative action firing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so she's black, she's lesbian, and she's a Haitian immigrant. Therefore, she's qualified. Uh, but uh, I think that the, the real contrast to me when you're watching the news over the last couple of days, it's four or five days of Trump will report on Thursday right. in Fulton County. And then, and now, President Biden's empathy tour in Maui, you know, unobstructed by any gaffes. Right. I mean, and, it, and also, and I just want to say also that, like, that's basically the sum total of the political coverage of this whole Maui thing. And there, I have seen very little, if anything, about the fact that there was a massive procedural error done by the... Uh, the mayor and the, there were a couple of departments that were supposed to be like setting off these like alarms, these right. warning signals that didn't didn't actually function properly. And Matt Walsh, Matt Walsh did this whole thing where he, he dug into um, basically what what went wrong there. And he points out like all these different points of failure where it was basically just either Democratic corruption or Democratic ineptitude. And none of that's being talked about. I mean, well, I think they've talked about them failing to do the sirens. What's missing is the D. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And it's, yes, okay, the, the, to clarify, yeah, he would, the, the uh, governor was even brought on Face the Nation and asked about it, right? But what's, what's not happening is his feet were not held to the fire. He was asked a question about it by Margaret Brennan and he gave some non answer and then she continued on to something else, right? There is, there is no desire to actually hold these people to account because they have the D next to their name. So, yes, it's, okay, to clarify, it is being talked about, it is not being, turned into the scandal that it should be treated as. Well, I mean, obviously, yes. The death toll there is 
is, you know, it's the worst wildfire that we know of. And so in America, so obviously it's a big story. And obviously when, yeah, when the, I'm, what they would try to probably say is, Hey, it's so fair blaming the Democrats just because this is a solidly like 90% Democrat state, you know, and everybody every, who could possibly be in charge in Hawaii is a Democrat. And because everybody who bungled this so absurdly is a Democrat. Right. <laughs> right. Now, I'll, I'm going to go off uh, to some of the older material. You know, last week, Bill, I devoted most of a podcast to Jake Tapper going on Twitter, still <laughs> calling it Twitter, uh, ripping Laura Ingram and Fox News for suggesting there was liberal media glee over Trump's indictments and especially for the mugshot that we'll probably see tomorrow in Georgia. Um, I should just report that we recorded the Tapper podcast that we posted on Friday. I taped it on Thursday before his afternoon show because we were all on Friday attending the Curtis Houck wedding and Italian slider reception on Friday. I'm still hoping I didn't ruin my tie with that sandwich but if so, it was worth it. Yeah, it was. It was a good wedding. <laughs> and congratulations to Curtis and Allie. Yes. They're in Mexico uh, on honeymoon. But to, uh, last Thursday afternoon, Tapper had some words on Hunter Biden. He played clips from the 2020 general election debates and acknowledged, oh, on the matter of Hunter Biden making money in China, Trump was right and Biden was wrong. You know, the only sad thing about that is they could have said that in 2020. Yeah, and okay, hold, Biden was wrong. No, Jake, all of you were wrong. All of you were gleefully playing that clip and then wagging your finger at the camera and saying, there is no evidence that, that Trump knows what he's talking about. It's absurd. It's, and it's, they and, said, as you did the video, Russian disinformation. Right, yeah, this is all fake. Nobody knows what Trump's talking about. It's kooky, it's stupid. We're not gonna look into it. You guys shouldn't even pay attention to it. We're just showing you this clip so that you can you can see how dumb Trump is with all these fake allegations. And it's it's nauseating to me that anybody would think to give Tapper credit for this observation years after the fact, as we're gearing up for the next election. And it's like, Jake, you you've done basically less than less than what the baseline expectation would be of a journalist in this regard, right? Like this is, this is like praising a kid who's failing out of school and cutting class. And it's like, well, at least he's going to school though. <laughs> well, this is the whole problem with the Hunter Biden scenario for everyone, which is they didn't do their jobs before people voted. Now, obviously some people, by the time the New York Post story broke about the laptop, some people probably already voted. Now, that could be a, a bigger debate about why on earth are we letting people vote in early October? Uh, why can't we at least have... Okay. Because it helps Democrats. That's, yeah, why, that's, yeah. why we're, that's why we're doing it. Yes, Democrats all say we need 47 days of voting. And when the Republicans say no, 25, they hate democracy. Right. No, well, that's, that, that is framed routinely as an attack on voting rights. <laughs> and we, I've, I've already done a whole explainer about it where I, I kind of lost my mind a little. I was insane with anger making that one. Uh, it's, well, I don't is, think it came across insane. But no, yes. no, of course not. But no, that's no, no, what no. makes I, it fun to watch. I was, I was a lot more measured in my actual delivery. But, uh, oh my gosh, I, I hate, I hate that line so much, rolling back voter rights. It's like, they're, they're letting you vote a month before the election happens. Like, that, is, that, is that rolling back voter rights? I'm sorry, no. And then there's the whole idea that when they finally acknowledge, well, we got a copy of the laptop, 
we're going to wait until 2022 to acknowledge that its contents are largely real. And even when you do that, you either do it as a one-day story, pretty much. That's what the Washington Post did. Or in the New York Times case, you acknowledge it inside the paper in the 20th paragraph of an article where you... you did they acknowledge it was real? If they did, they, they kind of did it you're like down in a subway bathroom. I mean- right, right, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like they're saying, look, you can shame us into maybe acknowledging it years later, but you can't shame us into caring. And that's the problem is it's, it's, then it's about the broader narrative. And that is everything, you notice this, every time people want to talk about this, Brent Baker tweeted Susan Page, they have to start by clearing their throat and harumphing this isn't comparable to Trump, but right, and it's right. like it's like Biden. The Bidens can't possibly be as corrupt as the Trumps, and but you and they're basically telling the voters you can't really ding Biden on corruption because he's so much less corrupt than Trump. That's the kind of the spin we're getting. When when in reality, if we had ever uncovered, if they had ever uncovered, because God knows they were turning over every rock in D.C. and in Russia for that matter, if they had ever uncovered something as flagrant between Trump Jr. and and Donald Trump as they have between Biden and his son, there would have been an impeachment proceeding just for that. Well, and instead we got an impeachment because Trump said to Zelensky, hey, could you look into this Burisma thing? Right, right. You you know, and that, that, what they're not doing is they're not going back and saying, now that we've seen all of these emails between Hunter Biden and dad, Hunter Biden and Devin Archer, we know that, you know, Joe Biden's getting on the phone with Hunter's clients. They would go back there and play all of these clips and say, who is, yeah, who is right and who is wrong? It shouldn't just be Tapper. It should be all of them. Right. And they should and, be. And routinely. And they should acknowledge that basically the first Trump impeachment looks kind of stupid in regards of he was trying to say to people, why don't you actually look into this? corruption between Hunter and Joe, and that was somehow an impeachable offense. And one of the reasons it was an impeachable offense is because the media is so pathetic in doing and covering the Bidens that it's somehow impeachable to ask questions that the media aren't willing to go and ask. And if you recall, yeah, during during their coverage of that whole thing, they were constantly saying, and there is no evidence that either Biden did anything wrong. And it's like, yeah, because you haven't looked, and every time you're shown evidence, you go, that's a conspiracy theory. So Jake Tapper acknowledging this and then immediately dropping it and moving on to something else is it's like we've been sitting in a house for three hours, and three hours ago I said, Jake, the house is on fire, and you said, well, you know, the experts don't agree with you. And then three hours later you finally, you know, the ceiling caves in and you go, well, yeah, okay, you know what? You know what? You were right. The house is on fire. And then you go back to talking about the weather, and it's like, Jake, no, the house is on fire. Let's talk about that. Yeah. And maybe get out of the building right Let, let's react to the fact that that is true now that you've acknowledged that but no he just he just moves on because he doesn't actually care you don't actually care jake this is where news judgment gets so impaired because what's always factored into it is we hate trump so much that he can't possibly be right about stuff right. he is such an incessant liar uh, an exaggerator that anything he says must be wrong. Well, look at lab leak theory. So, yes, the Washington Post editorial board acknowledged on Tuesday morning in 2023, gosh, maybe Trump and all those voters who hate the Chinese commies were right about something. Headline, in Wuhan, doctors knew the truth. They were told to keep quiet. Now, this led their opinions email 
on Wednesday morning, but good luck trying to find it on the website. It's not exactly prominent on it's not on the home page so this was just in like a newsletter that they send out to people who are subscribed like it, via email it right? hasn't been in the paper yet it, it says it was posted tuesday morning at right. 7 30 so you would expect it to be in today's paper so the washington post you're saying has sent an email in 2023 that in 2020 they would have described as reprehensibly racist <laughs> yeah it's like yeah saying wuhan red death you right. know or, right. and so uh, you can't call a virus from China a Chinese virus. That's 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 wrong. This is how, yeah, they get so wrapped up in that. Oh, and it leads to hate crimes in New York City. So, and in San Francisco. Uh, what the Post editorial board wrote was, Chinese authorities had acknowledged on December 31, 2019, there were 27 cases of quote-unquote pneumonia of unknown origin, 44 confirmed cases on January 3, 2020. Okay. And then, of course, they started lying and denying. Uh, the Post harumphed this was part of a series on authoritarianism and concluded, quote, at a time when trust and transparency were needed to save lives, Chinese authorities covered up the facts and lied, and they continue to do so today. Well, wow. good did, for you. Did anybody in America look, look for the truth? Did anybody in America in the media try to de determine where the virus might have come from? I think the problem here is... Somebody like the Washington Post that has this bold anti-authoritarian democracy dies in darkness motto, I think we all know this, trusted the Chinese government more than they trusted the Trump administration. And they also trusted a bunch of people in, in, the, in the NIH who were had a vested interest in not revealing that this was of, of laboratory origin. Because they were funding some of this research over in Wuhan. Yeah, that they didn't want everybody to do stories in 2020 on what is gain-of-function research and why are we trying to develop a deadly virus? Right, and they gave Fauci basically a free media tour to go around saying, like, no, it definitely wasn't that thing that we were funding. That's racist. And they were all like, wow, thank you. That's so amazing. And <laughs> That was I, Italian disinformation. Yeah, we, we put out— <laughs> I, I am. Sorry. I am. A, no, that's fine. I am. I am a chief purveyor of Italian disinformation. Um, follow me on Twitter. But no, I. I, uh, I made a video a couple of months ago about um, about all of the ridiculous things that they blamed the virus on because it was it was like they were stumbling around in the dark looking for anything other than lab leak theory. And I think my favorite one is uh, is this CNN newsroom uh, report where some guy over in Wuhan is like, yeah, so they, they think uh, snakes is where it came from. And then it cuts to Jim Shoto, and he goes, eating snakes. Wow, my goodness. And it's, <laughs> that, was, that was a great one. But yeah, they blamed, they blamed literally everything under the sun as long as it wasn't lab leak theory. They were open to literally anything else. And the lab leak theory really does correspond with the Hunter Biden laptop, is that, yes, when you, anybody who was, talking about that theory must have been a right-wing kook. Right. If you brought it up on any of these shows, they immediately rolled their eyes and went, oh, this again. And and then uh, we should say Washington Post fact checker after Trump was defeated so it was like, you know, there might be something to this. Well, great timing, bud. And it, it is that, that tendency where journalists have a sudden burst of self-respect after Trump's defeated. Oh, well, now it's now we're will with the election over. We're willing to reconsider that maybe some of this had some accuracy. All right, so this is kind of a uh, this is kind of a weird analogy, but bear with me, Tim. Um, when I was in seventh grade, I was over at my friend Chris's house, 
and we got Klondike bars and uh, out of the fridge, and we, we you know we ate them. And his he had like this finished basement thing, and uh, and I I couldn't really finish mine. I wasn't that hungry, and I just kind of put it on the arm of one of these chairs, <laughs> and uh, and then we we went we went up and and played some music because we were in a band together. We were very cool, uh, but. Uh, then the Klondike bar melted and got on the arm of this like nice chair and, and his mom like stormed upstairs and was like, who, who did this? Who left the, you, you ruined this chair. And I was terrified and just didn't say anything. And there were a couple of other friends with us. So me not speaking up basically meant that story was not solved. Uh, I ran into him at, at a bar maybe like three years ago when I was back home visiting family. And I finally confessed that to him and we had a laugh about it and whatever. That's basically how the media cover things. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's ba- like they're they're not going to tell us about the Klondike bar until like ten years after the fact. That is that is their modus. That is the model for the entire media spin on anything that they don't want to cover. And I, this is where to sum all of this up. If the news media were like we we were supposed to learn about in journalism one hundred and one, like in college, right? I guess mine was called mass media. Uh, overview, whatever it is you get in your freshman class where there's like 200 people in the class um, and you have a really lame textbook. That's what I remember. Anyway, that image you have of the news media holds all the politicians accountable, which is the biggest, most fraudulent lie because mm-hmm. they don't they hold Democrats not accountable at all. And they savage the Republicans with things that turn out not to be true, like you're all spreading a a Russian disinformation on a laptop. So that's not holding the Republicans accountable. It's lying about the Republicans. Yes, yes. So. Exactly. You'd like to think if you, what a lot of voters I think would like, uh, and maybe they don't because we all like slinging opinion TV, you know. Right. But if you simply, if a reporter simply tried to say, well, there's corruption on the Democrat side and there's corruption on the Republican side, you guys can have a fight about which one's worse, but we're here to talk about all of it. We're here to report the details of all of it. And that is that is where I think the mindset is the entire problem, because I think you'd be hard pressed to find anybody at, for example, NBC News, who is not in journalism at this point for the express purpose of exposing everything bad on the Republican side to help the Democrats. Like they got in. I, I assume that they got into journalism at this point. If you say you work for NBC News, I assume that you got into journalism with the explicit goal of political activism. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. And that's I know that's like a dark a dark assessment of our media, but I think that's the reality right now. Well, I think sometimes people get into television because they love themselves and <laughs> and think they'd be great on TV. Hey, look at me, mom. All right, leave Peter Alexander alone. <laughs> I do call Peter the Ken doll, whether that's fair or unfair, but part of it's just about the uh, you know, he the way he delivers the news, I guess I could pull that one off. Yeah, that was actually, you know, that video we were just talking about a little bit ago, the one um, the one that I put out recently. I had Eric Shiner, head of MRC TV, do the voiceover for it. And that was that was the only coaching I gave him was I, I just said, try to do Peter Alexander. And uh, <laughs> I think he nailed it, to be honest. We uh, we back in college radio, uh, people called it puking, which was it's one thing to to try to do a broadcast voice, it's another to kind of do it over the top. Right. Yeah. And Peter Alexander really dances on that line. I, this is this is the uh, what is he? White House correspondent for NBC. Yeah, News? one yeah. of them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I had uh, when I was in Bemidji, my roommate said the radio station manager called, and he was making fun <laughs> of the way the guy sounded on the phone. He right, couldn't. Right. 
I may have mentioned this before. Anyway, so yes, we will come back in the next episode and try to evaluate how the debate went. Now, we are not in the business of telling you which candidate you should prefer or who was who had the best answers. It's really for us more about how did the Fox moderators behave and then more importantly, yes, how does it make it through that fun house of Morning Joe and <laughs> and every other left-wing media outlet? Uh, and so we'll have more on that. And uh, in the meantime, if you're watching the debate tonight, you got to follow these Twitter accounts, KevinTilber94, and you're at band underscore Bill. Yep. Going to be churning out the, the, the tweets. I joked inside. He said, who's on the night shift and who's on the morning shift? I said, well, I'll be home, but I'm doing both. Yeah. Power to you, Tim. Executive editor. We just got to do all this stuff. All right, so this is where you come to Newsbusters, get what you need to know once, twice, 24 times a day. Thanks for listening. Have a good one, everybody.